0: Decision-making is a key role in our day-to-day lives, but let's take it to another level. How are choices made in the context of war? Well, the IHL Principle of Distinction has the answer. Hi, my name is Janice Wong.
1: And I'm Vicky Poo. We are both IHL Youth Advocates on the IHL United team, and today we are going to be discussing distinction and what exactly that means for education with Anthony Noh, a former member of the Marines and an aspiring teacher. First, let's take a look at the principle of distinction. What is it? When does it apply? Well, according to the ICRC casebook, distinction is a fundamental principle of international humanitarian law that states parties to an armed conflict must at all times distinguish between the civilian population and combatants and between civilian objects and military objects and accordingly shall direct their operations only against military objectives. In simpler terms, the principle states that we have to separate civilians and combatants as well as military objectives and civilian objects in order to minimize collateral damage to civilians and civilian structures. There are three categories of people under this principle. Combatants, non-combatants, and civilians. Combatants are members of state's armed forces and can legally engage in fighting and be targeted. If they are captured, they have certain rights as prisoners of war and cannot be criminally charged for their lawful actions. Injured soldiers are also no longer combatants after laying down their weapons. However, there are certain factors that combatants must fall within. They must be commanded by a person responsible for their subordinates. They must be distinguishable at a distance. For example, they must wear an emblem or uniform. Next, they must carry their weapons openly. And of course, they must conduct their operations with the laws and customs of war. Noncombatants are members of a state's armed forces, such as medical personnel or chaplains. If they are captured, they must be returned to their side unless they stay to attend to prisoners of war from their side. Lastly, civilians are everyone else. Everyone must be assumed to be a civilian unless there is evidence otherwise. They cannot be directly targeted. However, if they participate in the armed conflict, they can lose their protection as civilians. Does this mean civilians can engage in war with no consequences? Thankfully, no. These civilians are not lawful combatants and therefore will not be given the privileges that come with it, such as being a prisoner of war, and will be charged for their contributions to hostilities. Now, let's talk about the difference between military objectives and civilian objects. Military objectives are objects that inherently make an effective contribution to military action and whose destruction, capture, or neutralization offer a definite military advantage. Civilian objects, on the other hand, are all objects unless they are distinctly military objectives. For example, a community well would be a civilian object since by its nature, it does not provide a military advantage. As we said before, when parties attack, they must distinguish between civilians and combatants as well as civilian objects and military objectives. Only combatants and military objectives can be deliberately targeted. Because of this, weapons that cannot tell the difference between the status of people or objects are strictly prohibited under IHL. So what are some real examples of distinction in action? Our first example will be from the case of Osman versus prosecutor, which took place in Malaysia in 1965. During this incident, two secretaries in a bank in Singapore were killed from an explosion caused by the two appealants. These appealants were not wearing uniforms, had no ID papers and murdered two secretaries as well as a nearby person. However, They claimed to be members of the Indonesian Armed Forces and therefore had the protection of prisoners of war. Is it that simple? Will these people not be punished after self-identifying as lawful combatants? Thankfully, no. Even if they were truly members of Indonesian Armed Forces, they forfeited any rights they had when they traded their uniforms for civilian clothing. They also attacked civilian targets causing the death of peaceful civilians as well as damaging non-military buildings all of these offenses go against the principle of distinction so the trial judge ruled that they were not entitled to the status of prisoners of war and convicted them another example of this principle is when it was used to limit military actions in 2015 Trucks driving oil for ISIS were determined to be valid military objectives by the United States since destroying them would lead to military advantage. However, the truck drivers were civilians. Now we're met with a dilemma. The U.S. military wants to gain that advantage but needs to do it in a way that does not harm any civilians. What would you do in this situation? In the end, the U.S. dropped leaflets over the trucks to signal an attack would soon be conducted warning the civilians prevented any unnecessary death while still leading to the desired outcome for the U.S. This is a great example of carrying out tasks while still obeying the principle of distinction.
0: Now that we know what the principle of distinction is, how does this affect education and war? First off, let's discuss the importance of education in countries at war. It is clear that schooling is an intrinsic part of the development of a community. However, when schools are being used by the military, it poses a variety of issues and influences the future decisions of these children. Our guest speaker, Anthony No, reflects on his own experiences in education and how he was affected by his circumstances at the time. He talks about his choice of joining the Marine Corps as well as becoming an educator himself.
2: My decision to become an educator came first before my enlistment. I decided to become an educator early in my college career due to experiencing firsthand the impact that teachers and professors have on the perspective of their students. As someone who struggled financially growing up, my teachers and educators showed me that opportunities were available for pursuing higher education. The passion pushed me to look ahead and set higher expectations for myself and I hope to be able to help others realize they, how much potential they have as well. When my recruiter reached out to me, he offered me an opportunity to learn different teaching styles, a military occupational specialty that is directly related to teaching others, and funding for higher education. Knowing the pros outweigh the cons, I decisively took the offer, which has reinforced my decision to become an educator to this day.
0: No mentions that he was less fortunate growing up affecting his education, which in part changed his choices in the future. This happens similarly to children affected in war-torn countries, but to a greater extent. The principle of distinction currently provides protection for schools. In general, schools and students are considered civilian objects, and attacking one is considered to be one of the sixth-grade violations, which make up the basis of laws protecting children. Attack and closure of schools as a direct result of threats also falls under these violations. However, there are no laws in IHL that explicitly prohibit the use of schools. But if education is so important, why would armed forces continue to use these campuses? The simple answer is convenience. Majority of facilities provide electricity, water, plumbing, and large spaces, something that is not common everywhere. In addition, it is difficult for the government to keep track of. Therefore, there have been instances where armed forces have used the campuses of schools and universities to hold ammunition, train soldiers, or even as a position to attack from. In turn, these buildings are transformed into a military objective, as it provides an advantage to war. They are no longer protected under IHL and are susceptible to attack. In fact, between the years of 2013 and 2017. The Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack, or GCPEA, identified at least one incident of military use of schools in each of 29 countries, where 24 countries were involved in the armed conflict. An essential question is presented when schools become a military objective. Should it be attacked or not? This is when the principle of distinction comes into play. When schools are used in armed conflict, all other factors of IHL have to be followed to ensure that civilians are safe and that there is no violation of the four principles. Soldiers have to consider whether there will be teachers or even students within the school itself when attacking. If there is not, it can be targeted. A major problem arises from this situation though. If the school is demolished, children will no longer have a place to learn. Education is an intrinsic part to the development of children. Access to safe schools allow children to be protected and have a sense of normalcy in time of conflict. However, due to the circumstances of war, parents become fearful of the lives of their children. Anthony Ngo gives his two cents on why education is so vital.
2: As an aspiring teacher, quality education is important to me because I've come to realize that education is not equally accessible to everyone. Being born less fortunate should not limit the potential and future aspirations of people's lives. Equality education has allowed me, and hopefully others, the opportunity of pursuing a higher education and better life. A
0: lack of schooling results in a ruthless cycle of the undereducation of a society, overall lesser employment opportunities, and poverty, which results in areas that are torn due to armed conflict. However, there is a continual progress in protecting education. In 2011, the Secretary Council adopted Resolution 1998, which had the UN name and list those who attacked schools, hospitals, and any others protected under IHL, so that they were able to work to prevent further violations. And in 2015, the Safe Schools Declaration was established, clearly recording the commitment of governments to protect all aspects of education. Schools throughout the world constantly face new struggles, especially those in armed conflict. Nonetheless, the international humanitarian law and its four principles of distinction, proportionality, military necessity, and unnecessary suffering are always working and adapting to protect education, allowing children to be able to go to schools and receive quality schooling. The battle for education continues today. So stay tuned for our next episode to learn how the principle of proportionality further contributes to our society in times of war. If you have any questions, email it to us at ihlawunited at gmail.com and make sure to follow us on Instagram at ihlunitedwestbay. Thanks for listening! Before we end this episode, we would like to give special thanks to Anthony No, our guest speaker, Ola Alani, the YAC Regional Coordinator for the North Bay Region, Tiffany Cham, the International Services and Armed Forces Coordinator, and everyone in IHL that made this campaign possible. Thank you so much for making not only this podcast a reality, but also the entire program, where each of us get to learn so much more. Once again, thank you.